I always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie? Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. Still riding the high of Robert De Niro last week. I've got to be honest with you. I don't know if this qualifies as rank self-absorption or just pride, but I've listened to the interview now three times since it actually aired on Cinephile. I'm just trying to get the numbers up, but I'm like, the thing that hits me every time is when I hear my voice asking a question and then Robert De Niro's actually answering the question. I just can't get over that stancing. My thanks to all those that have tweeted the show um, and particularly getting pub out for Cinephile that episode alone. Scott Van Pelt, Mike Greenberg, Mike Golick, Mike Golick Jr., Ron Rosillo, Danny Cannell, all my baseball buddies, Buster, Timmy, Stark, Keith Law, uh, did a tremendous job of getting the word out. And people have definitely, uh, people who had not heard of Cinephile before were like, hey, you got De Niro? I'm going to listen to this. So my thanks to all those that listened and have been so kind and offering such kind words. I think the other big takeaway is people are still shocked that Stanzik didn't want to get a picture with him, but would do so with one of a female. Like Mila Don't Kunis lie. No one said that. That's people like, oh, yeah, I still can't believe Stanzik wouldn't get a picture. Now, the, the, the thing that people actually really enjoyed was, I, sadly, maybe, the postscript they find more entertaining even than the interview. They're like, the interview was good. It was very professionally proficient, and he did a good balance of being a journalist but also being a bit of a fanboy. Like, he clearly could get that you're a fan. But they go, the backstory behind it, the stress and the anxiety and the stories, like, that kind of brings the story full circle. The driving five hours <laughs> to do the interview and then five hours back to Pennsylvania, I think, speaks for itself. You also brought in a figurine of one of his characters and showed it to him. He's this 70-something-year-old male, and he's like, what is this guy doing to me? I wish we don't have any video, right? Like, at no point were we shooting video of it. It's only still pictures. We have three pictures, all on my phone. (laughs) I think I sent them all to you. I don't know what else you want. I just wish we had video. I could just roll it in my room and just consist it like on a projector. Here I am interviewing De Niro again, the height of self-absorption. You're right, the figurine. I listened back to that, but it kind of goes, oh, okay, yeah. Like, wow, weird is this guy? You thought Travis Bickle was a nut. My goal, of course, is not only to spread the word about cinephile and to hopefully share this love of movies that I have with everybody, but also to educate. And that starts with my buddy Stanzik. Major news. He finally saw The Verdict, which I'm so happy he did. What did you think? I'll tell you what. Had you not hyped it up that much, I don't think I would have gotten the ending as being that transfixing. Right. I think it was just like, oh, you know, it's over. I won the case. But while you bring up movies that I've now seen, I have now seen Quick Change and Rushmore. And your top five of Bill Murray movies is now even more appalling to me because his roles in those movies is not nearly as good as his roles in other films that you neglected in your top five. Appalling. Rushmore first. Scorsese loved it so much, he wrote Wes Anderson a handwritten note going, that's one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. It's a great movie, but his role in it is subpar compared to his other no, roles. He's, he, he's a relatively minor character. No, he's not. He's critical. The movie, he's that the movie is about the kid. It is not about Bill Murray. She's my Rushmore. <laughs> That's what makes it good. So about he, the, has, he has like one or two decent lines. Okay. The, the revenge quick fantasy. Quick Change is actually better. His role in Quick Change is better than his role in Rushmore. First quick on Change Rushmore. is a horrible movie. No, no, no. The revenge fantasy sequence is great in Rushmore where they're going back and forth. And also the scene, he just he just swats the ball away from the kid playing basketball. How about the scene where he yells at his kids, put their seatbelts on? But Quick Change. Um, not only Bill Murray's. How about just the, the clown sequence? The whole sequence at the beginning. Is this a local call? Uh, dial 212. All right, clown, enough of you. It is clever, but like 
it didn't really hold up. I don't know. It, right. He's in so many better movies. <laughs> Still appalled. Appalling. <laughs> also, uh, this week for Scorsese stories, Stanzik finally saw Main Street. So rather than – I'll tell some more stories about Main Street, but I want to hear Stanzik's review of Main Street. That's what we're going to do. All right. Terry Crews is coming up. He's unbelievable. I met him at the Celebrity Softball Game in San Diego. He's so funny. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a hysterical show. He's going to tell you stories about that. But also The Expendables. What was it like working with all the great action heroes of our time and how they would muscle up with each other? And Terry gets very candid about his pornography addiction, how he overcame that, why he went public with that. So that interview is coming up next. But first reviews of new movies. So first and foremost, went and saw Sully. I was a little bit hesitant because I'm like, what exactly is the whole goal here? Like the story is still so fresh. I'm well aware of what... um, this gentleman did and how heroic it was and the, the miracle on the Hudson and saving 155 passengers by landing his plane on in the river. Uh, so why are we making a true life movie about it? And I guess the answer is, you know, we make a true life movie about everything. So I'm like, all right, fine. Uh, but I got to be honest with you. First and foremost, it's a disappointment because if you're going to take a story like this, <clears throat> you have to, to somehow make what is already extraordinary in real life and then supersede it in, in fiction, which is already sounds like an impossible task. So how do you make something which already has a huge amount of resonance for people make it even special? You have to have new information, new material that you don't know about the story, or you just tell it in such a visceral, uh, captivating fashion that it overwhelms the senses, which it did not do. So I thought it was, you know, Eastwood's direction was very uninspired. It was very paint by numbers. The first 30 minutes... It's just jarringly boring because, like, I wasn't sure if it was going to be here's Sully growing up. Here's how he became a pilot. Okay, second act is the actual um, landing, and then the third act is the aftermath. Instead, and I give them credit, they tried to be different about it. They started so-called present day, so it was after the miracle was happening. But literally, it's 30 minutes of boardroom meetings, and he couldn't have directed it more stale. It's just establishing shot, two shot, reaction shot. Like, who the hell wants to watch a movie with a bunch of board meetings? Like, essentially, the movie becomes a cross-examination of Sully and whether or not he did the right thing. And I guess this is the, the material that they're hoping would be interesting, is if you don't know the story, he got a lot of heat uh, from the airlines with the fact that they believed, even with the engine going down, even after the birds went in there, he had enough time to land back at LaGuardia. So essentially, it wasn't like he was going to get sued, but it was like he was culpable in that he took a risk that wasn't necessary. He could have just landed back at LaGuardia. The birds you know, hitting the engine happened quickly after takeoff. He unnecessarily took this gigantic risk going in the river. And that's how they try to hold the suspense for the movie, but it, it just doesn't hold its weight. Thankfully, the sequence where the plane actually does do the landing is well done. But again, it's it's done in flashbacks, so it's not like it's one big continuous shot. Like, think about The Aviator. When Howard Hughes goes down, like Scorsese puts all the razzle-dazzle in there. Like, you've got to have a great big plane crash that people are going to remember. Flight, your boy Denzel. By the way, we're doing Denzel Actors Showcase coming up today. I thought it was a good movie. I didn't think it was great. I didn't like the ending, the way he admits that he's an alcoholic like in that final scene. I didn't think he would do that in that vein. But... I thought he was great in the movie, and the and that crash is extraordinary. Like Zemeckis knows, I've got to make this look as powerful as it can be. Like I need to entrance the audience. Like you have to be visually dazzling in these moments. If Eastwood doesn't pull it off when you're going to see a movie called Sully, then it's a disappointment, plain and simple. It's shorter than I thought, which is good news. It's 96 minutes, but I'm telling you, the first 30 minutes is so drab and slow, slow pace, you're going to have a tough time trying to get through it. Maybe you figure, okay, it's not just going to be about Sully. Maybe he'll tell like, some backstories about the passengers, 155 people there. Maybe the flight crew. Maybe the co-pilot played by Aaron Eckhart. No, there's no backstories of any of these people. It's just faceless people who are being evacuated at some point, so there's no real human interest story there. It's not like a disaster movie like Alive where you start to learn about the characters and what, where they came from and why this is important. He really doesn't – you know, he, he eschews that material. 
Um, and as for Hanks' performance, he's fine. But, I mean, it is as predictable a Tom Hanks performance as you'll ever imagine. Just heroic and stoic and just a good dude and trying to do the right thing. And, again, to go back to flight, if you're going to have a disaster movie, you have to have – this is the, the biggest flaw of Sully. You have to have a captivating central character. Plain and simple. Denzel in flight is captivating because he's a hero, but he's also a drunk who took a bunch of drugs and they killed some people on the plane, but he saved most of them. But that's what makes human drama compelling, that there has to be some warts within it. Sully is a completely bland character. There's nothing interesting about this guy. He's a good family man. He did the right thing by landing and that's it. He doesn't have a drinking problem, doesn't have a drug problem, isn't a sex addict, he doesn't have an issue with his children, he's a good husband, like there's nothing unique, he doesn't have a bad temper, like there's nothing unique about this guy, he's just a bland, predictable person, Hanks plays him exactly as he is, which is a straight arrow, which is fine for real life, but in a movie, you gotta give me some substance here, so I'm giving Sully two Maple Leafs, it's, you know, people today like to call it old-fashioned entertainment, which just means, you know what, it's awfully square and it's awfully bland. And that's where I'm coming up with with Sully. You going to go see it, Stancic, or no? Not after that. Yeah. Man, I know you're a Hanks hater, so I got to no, back that in a little true. bit. <laughs> but it, it sounds like a bad spinoff of Flight. Yeah, I'm which telling was you. not a good Denzel movie. Right, but I'm telling you, Flight compared to this is like Ben-Hur. It was outstanding. The next movie, though, and I understand we do a lot of dramas and heavy-handed movies. Well, it's time for some comedies. This is the funniest movie of the year, and it's not Sausage Party because I reviewed that previously. I gave it two and a half. It's called Pop Star, Never Stop Popping, starring our boy Andy Samberg. Now, I am not an SNL guy. I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in about, I'm going to say, 15, 20 years. Like, my heyday was Phil Hartman and Mike Myers and Adam Sandler, those guys. This movie is hysterical. And, like, I, I'm saying this as a guy who doesn't know Sandberg's work. Like, I've, I've seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine a few times. I'm aware of the skits with Justin Timberlake. But I don't go, oh, Andy Sandberg, I'm in on this. I just go, okay, I, I'm aware of his stuff. From now on, though, I'm all in on Andy Sandberg because of this movie. Because it's basically just an elaborate spoof of Justin Bieber. But it, it calls to mind one of the great comedies of all time, which is This is Spinal Tap, the Rob Reiner movie and Christopher Guest, and that, that is such a landmark movie. And they definitely borrow from that in having these really funny songs and being so satirical. There's a song, like early on in the gate, like Samberg comes to prominence, and it's like a gay anthem, and his refrain is, I'm not gay. So, like, the whole song, he's singing, like, hey, if you were gay, he's like, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. Hey, 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 I'm not gay. And, like, he's trying to be pro-gay, and yet he's so <laughs> sensitive to gay rights and him being gay. He's like, hey, I'm not gay, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. Not, 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 not gay. <laughs> and at one point, they have Ringo Starr doing a cameo, and he goes, why is he singing a song about not being gay and gay rights? It's, it's already allowed. Like, what's, why, why is he doing this? <laughs> and they've got, I mean, you talk about star-studded cameos. They've got... Everybody, like Justin Timberlake plays a chef in there. Mariah Carey's in the movie. I mean, all these SNL alum. And the guy that steals the movie, our boy Will Arnett, who is doing a Harvey Levin send-up. <laughs> He's only in like two scenes. I sent Will a message. I go, dude, I've watched your scenes like 10 times each. It is so funny what he's doing with Harvey Levin and that whole TMZ crew. The way it's shot, like it is a perfect send-up of what – how stupid that whole TMZ show is. Will Arnett is Harvey Levin. Like in a just world that he would be winning awards for this. He's only in it like 10 minutes, but it's amazing how funny Will Arnett is. Uh, another song, I, again, I can't really say on the podcast, but Andy Samberg says that a girl is imploring him to do to him, 
to, to, to do to her what the U.S. government did to bin Laden. It is such a filthy song, and he's singing it like at this huge concert. These teenage girls are going crazy, but it's so infectious. I mean, it actually, it's a really catchy pop song. I mean, if they played this bin Laden song on the air, it would actually sell records. That's how catchy it is. Uh, good news is it's pretty short. It's like 85 minutes. Uh, and it's a laugh riot, start to finish. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. You want to have a really good laugh, you go watch Pop Star, Never Stop Popping, which is currently available on DVD and DirecTV. The next movie is Hell or High Water. This is a southern crime film, which I really enjoyed. I was hearing rave reviews about it. I believe on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got like 98%. So it's the, the best-reviewed movie of the year so far. Uh, Jeff Bridges stars as a sheriff who's going after a couple of robbers. And it really calls to mind a great underrated B-movie called one False Move, which came out in 1991, and it was um, a young Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxson's in it. Carl Franklin is the director. It's one of those great, um, you know, under-the-radar action movies that, you, you know, you never really hear about unless someone tells you about it, and you go watching it. Wow, this One False Move is really good. Um, but really, this movie, Hell or High Water, nails the idea of the South and the way these guys are, and not only with the music and the costumes, but just that whole vibe of Southern culture. But rather than being romanticized about it or, you know, a bunch of farmers here, these guys are looking to get some money. And there are a couple of rednecks who just want to rob some banks and make some money. And Chris Pine and Ben Foster are the two guys that are uh, the robbers. And I've never seen either play this kind of role. Ben Foster is a pretty good actor. He's, he's kind of under the radar. And Chris Pine, of course, you know from Star Trek. But here he's got the big old stash. they got their cowboy shirts, their cowboy hats, their boots. Uh, and they do an excellent job of playing these these young guns. And then Bridges. Bridges is like channeling Sam Elliott in The Big Lebowski. Like Bridges' best role is the dude in The Big Lebowski. And here he's kind of like Sam Elliott. He just has the huge mustache and the, and the big cowboy hat. And it's just a really well-paced thriller. Like you're going to get your gunplay and your bank heist scenes. But it, it's further demonstration of why Jeff Bridges is, is one of the best actors out there. Like he's so good at playing this kind of character. So check out Hell, Hell or High Water. I'm giving this one three and a half Maple Leafs. Shades of One False Move, that B movie. If you want some a little more um, mainstream, I guess it's a little bit like No Country for Old Men. So if you like No Country for Old Men, I definitely think you'll appreciate Hell or High Water. Uh, the next movie that I'm reviewing is Maggie's Plan. This is with my guy, Ethan Hawke. We're going romantic comedy here, mixing it up. Um, this definitely has shades of Woody Allen. Rebecca Miller is the writer-director. She's actually the wife of Daniel Day-Lewis, who's one of my favorite actors. And the story is very whimsical, and it's about um, this girl named Greta Gerwig is the actress. And she falls in love with Ethan Hawke, who's actually married to Julianne Moore. She, you know, Hawke's on the downside of his marriage, so ends up having an affair with her. He leaves his wife, who's Julianne Moore, for Greta Gerwig. The plan then fast-forwards, and the reason why the movie is called Maggie's Plan is her idea is to now put Ethan Hawke and Julianne Moore back together because she's realized that you know marrying him is a mistake. Their marriage has not worked out, even though she was hoping it would. He's basically just a self-absorbed guy who's just a big lout and doesn't care about her, and uh, she tries to get them back together. So I thought the concept was cute. Uh, again, romantic comedies are not something that uh, are something that, not a genre that I particularly have a fondness for. But I thought if you like that type of movie, then I thought Maggie's plan was really endearing because of the performances of the leads. Ethan Hawke, Julianne Moore, and Greta Gerwig, who has this real kind of, I don't want to say Annie Hall-type quality to her, but she definitely has that, that bubbliness of a young Diane Keaton in those Woody Allen movies. And I think the movie very obviously is, is cribbing from Woody Allen uh, and those early films that he made, but it's really sweet. And I think in that, in that vein, I'm giving that movie three Maple Leafs. How about a documentary? We're all over the place. We've got romantic comedies. We've got southern crime dramas. We have straight-up comedies. And um, we have the real-life tale with Sully. How about a documentary, Wiener, which is about Anthony Wiener, the disgraced politician? 
This one, unfortunately, feels a little bit dated only because of recent events. Because what happened just a couple weeks ago, there was another sexting scandal involving this guy. So if you try to rem- – you know, when I watched it, I tried to forget about that had just happened, which is an impossibility. But bear with me. You watch it because what it's doing is it's showing from when the first scandal had already hit and he's trying to redeem himself now and he was running for New York City mayor. So the movie does an excellent job. Stanzik's are my political uh, savant here, so he knows all about Anthony Weiner. But I didn't know as much about him. Like he was this Democratic congressman who was great. Like they shot the movie the first 10 minutes of like all the times he was so impassioned. Uh, and he would like just yell down that the Speaker of the House or anybody opposing him and really is – Kind of like an old school, like a Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Like, I'm going to fight for the little guy. I'm going to fight for the middle class. And he seemed genuine about it. So just seeing his politics, I'm like, oh, I can see what this guy was so um, powerful and the fact that he was so charismatic. Then they explain the sexting scandal, scandal, how that went down. But now he's trying to regroup. He's trying to run for mayor. So the movie's kind of showing behind the scenes how does politics work. Okay, it's fine. But then the second scandal hits. So now it's like, oh, my God. So now this documentary goes from what feels like a rehab project for Anthony Weiner to now know how does a political candidate deal with crisis again the second time. And it's not only dramatic because you really feel for Huma, his wife, because you're like, I can't believe that she's with this guy. And she's in the documentary. Like, you know, they, they see her talking to him and stuff. But there's never a scene where she tells the camera, here's why I stayed with him or here's why I still love him. Like, there's, it's not that open-ended. But you see their interactions and you see them saying, how are we going to deal with this now? What are we going to say to the papers? What are we going to do? And Huma was so selfless. She came out and said, listen, my husband had a problem. You know, this second sexting scandal, which feels new to all of you, is actually old news. Like before we were going to separate. So this is not new to me what's happened, what, what Anthony was doing. This is old news here. We're just moving forward. I think he'll be a great mayor and let's just try to do this. And what's crazy about the documentary is that he doesn't really acknowledge that he has a problem. Like whenever they kind of mention it, it's always like, all right, how do we fix this? Like, how do we troubleshoot this? It's not, I have a problem. I should go to rehab. Like why do I keep doing this? He's not introspective. Which, in a way, I think shows um, how successful he's been because he's just so stubborn and logical. Like, let's just push ahead. I'm going to be mayor. Focus on the issues. I'm going to help the middle class. I want no more tax cuts for the rich. Forget about all that. They aren't going to listen to you because of all your personal life. Unless you acknowledge your personal life. And so he gets interviewed. Okay, we have to do the interviews at the late night shows or whatever. Fine. But he's so combative about it. Like, he goes on with CNN and they just want to ask him, Anthony, what are you doing? Like, well, there's going to be questions about your character. How do you answer those? It's like, you know what? I've already talked about it. It's happened in the past. Let's focus on the issues. Let's focus on fiscal responsibility. Let's focus on job creation. And it's like, you don't get it. People want to know what's other stuff. At one point in the New York mayor election, he was leading. They were like, his numbers are great. Then once that second scandal hit, it was like, psh. Game over. Done. They're like, this guy did this once before. Now he's done it again. No chance. And there's an amazing scene. He goes and it's like a Jewish area of New York City. And the guy just starts attacking him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I see Stanzik's nodding. He remembers this. I, I've never seen this video. It's unbelievable. The way the guy starts going at him. And Wiener should just walk away. Like, forget it, man. But he was like, because the guy's, you know, he's, he's obviously admonishing him. Like, what kind of a father are you? What kind of a husband are you? And he's like, you know what, buddy? Like, yeah, you, like, you don't have flaws, man. Yeah, like, you don't have flaws. Hey, I'll go into your personal house. And it's like, Wiener. Dude, like, you don't have to fight everybody. Like, that combativeness uh, in government is important. But on a personal scale, walk away. There's cameras here. Everybody's watching it. You look like a doofus. You look like this hot-tempered heel. And, like, the guy, he brings up the fact he's Jewish. He's like, oh, don't you know my friend? Like, you you got a yarmulke on. Don't you know our faith, what our faith's about? Like, you know, you know, you shouldn't be judging others. Only one guy can judge me. That's the Lord. It's just ugly the whole time. You go, doesn't he have the self and errors to walk away? They then show the great clip of John Stewart. Because the one thing that you, the movie does try to show is sympathy for Wiener. Because they keep interspersing Fallon and, and Leno and Letterman. Like, these guys, were, it was a nightly punchline. Like, it was a, the gift that kept on giving Anthony Wiener jokes. And they show John Stewart show the scale. And at one 
point, I guess the Jewish guy had muttered to Wiener, yeah, and you're married to an Arab too. And John Stewart goes, that guy really said that? Hey, you know what? F that guy. <laughs> so like he's, he's supporting Did Wiener because how bad it was. that John Stewart and Anthony Wiener were like friends on the Jersey Shore? Really? They didn't yeah, mention they, not that. Not necessarily like grew up together, but like early out of college were friends. I think may have even lived in the same summer house together. Oh, wow. So yeah, so there was a friendship that. there. It was very odd. And when that was all going on, the first scandal – that's when Stewart was filming his movie. So that was when John Oliver was in for Stewart on The Daily Show. Oh, wow. And he was crushing Wiener. Whew. Yeah, like the, the way that they assaulted this guy. Like even I'm watching it going, okay, listen, he has flaws. We all have personal feelings. This guy's getting roasted every day. The news, the New York Post tabloids, like everything's about this. Like I'm like, I can't believe he's still even in the public eye. So at one point, it's amazing. Like when, when he realizes like he just gets roasted uh, and he has no chance of winning the election. And he's completely on the edge of ruin. The documentarian even says to him, like, why did you let me film you? Like, why did you agree to this? Like, you you know what you are. You know what you've done. Why the hell would you give me access to document this complete crumbling of a human being in his political campaign? If you love politics like Stanzik, it's a must. If you just like good documentaries, it's a must. And I think it's a really enjoyable movie. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. So check out Wiener for a good documentary there. So to recap, Sully gets two Maple Leafs. Pop Star Never Stop Poppin' gets three and a half Maple Leafs. Uh, Maggie's Plan gets three Maple Leafs. Uh, what else did I say? Wiener gets three. Hell or High Water. And Hell or High Water. Southern Crime Drama. You'll definitely be hearing about that one. Three and a half Maple Leafs as well. Great to have my man Terry Crews here with us on Cinephile. First and foremost, Terry, why are you still clothed? I was expecting you'd be having your shirt off immediately. <laughs> oh, no, it was coming off on the way over, and I said, ah, maybe I'll do it a little bit later. <laughs> All right, we were hoping for our first shirtless guest here on Cinephile. Well, see, I, I realized you couldn't see it, so I said, well, hey, you know. That's a very good point. Speaking of, the last time I hung out with my man T. Cruz was at Celebrity Softball in San Diego, and the moment that everybody is still talking about is this. Now, you were obviously playing in it. I'm assuming he didn't DVR it, but this was my call of what happened. David Wells making him wait. Oh, my. He got foul He struck him out. Hey, is that a foul thing? He got him. Terry Crews just struck out with his shirt off. Okay, he looked so good with his shirt off, then he looked terrible when he had to swing the bat. Come on, TC, what happened? What happened? That is a humbling moment for Terry Crews. Oh, yay. So the, the thing everybody keeps saying to me is, like, the fact that I was screaming, he looked so good when he took his shirt off, and then what happened when he struck out? Now, my belief is this. I'm telling everybody. Okay. I go, Terry is funny. He's a goofball. He totally struck out on purpose. Right? No. Get no. Out. No, you're lying no, to me. Bro. You're lying right now. I went for you're it. You're an athlete. You're an NFL player uh, yeah. for years. There's now, no but, way Wait, wait, wait. Out. No, man. First of all, I'm an athlete, too. <laughs> I, I'm an athlete. But that doesn't mean I can go drive a, you know, Indy 500 car, you know? <laughs> I have no idea. I listen. Baseball is a skill, man. You're right. It's a skill, dude. I just I, let me say. I knew I wasn't gonna hit that ball. I knew it. So I said, you know what? How can I? Because imagine what would happen if I just whiffed it and left. No, I said I gotta make this a show. I got the people paid their money, and I'm gonna give them something to see. And let me tell you something. They did it, and, and let me, it worked. When that clip is still playing right There's now, no question. I mean, hey, Drew Brees hit a home run. <laughs> Drew Brees hit a home run. You see that clip? Nope. No, no one sees that clip. 
Like our producer after goes, guess what went viral? Terry taking his shirt off, the peck dance, and when he struck out. Well, That's you, all anybody's talking about. You gotta understand. Monica's- we had Nina Agdal. That's Leo's girlfriend. Nobody cares. Well, Terry well, Crews struck out. You know what was wild is that I got all these people that were online like, you suck. And you can't. You, uh, it's a shame of it all. Shame of it all. But but the deal is, is I, I am unembarrassable. That's a superpower yeah. I have. You can't embarrass me. I, I, it's not. And, and you know what? The good thing was is that I'm also telling people, go for it. Just go for it. Yeah. Who cares? That's a great point. You know point. what? Life is you, – you, if you know you're not going to hit it, just go for it. Just try it. And if I would have hit it, it would have been fine, but it didn't. <laughs> My belief is Terry Crews was on the take. J.K. Simmons gave him some money to strike out just so J.K. would look all right. That That is absolutely what I think oh. happened. You That's actors funny. all stick together. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is coming out next week. Hysterical show. You're yes. great on it. Thank Andy you. Sandberg is great on it. The guy I want to ask you about, though, is Andre Brower, because yeah. I loved Homicide, Life yeah. on the Street, which was a great cop drama, and he actually won an Emmy the final season of that show. But on your show, again, he's playing a cop, but he's a sergeant who's gay, and it's all kind of very straight-laced. Tell me about working with Andre. Andre legitimizes our show. Legitimizes. I mean, you're talking about a guy, Juilliard trained, uh, a superstar, Emmy award winning, you know, guy who played a a detective police officer for years on a legitimate, serious, hardcore show called Homicide. (laughs) And then he flips into the craziest comedy. Again, uh, you got to understand that, that Andre was in glory with, you know, Denzel Washington, yes. Morgan Freeman. He's of that class. Right. And to come on our show and to do the things he does, like dress up like a penguin. And, <laughs> I mean, not penguin, but a, a pigeon. Or, you know, just put himself in these positions where you just go, oh, my God, I can't believe we have the Andre Brower doing it. Right. You almost have to ask yourself, am I watching this? Right. Am I really watching it? And the lines he gets to say, he is amazing. He legitimizes what we do, and then we can be as funny as possible. The greatness of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and why you guys should be so proud is that in today's television, it's a lot easier. The critics are all focusing on these shows that are not on network television. So right. Game of Thrones gets love, yeah. and Veep gets love, and all these shows. And I'm like, what you guys are doing is a very classic sitcom, which today I think is incredibly difficult because of that competition you're facing from those other networks. Well, it is. I mean, I think we you know, we give you comedy for a new age. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no laugh track. There's no single camera thing. We're not all on stages and doing right. We're, we're, it feels like you know us. And, and I, I have to say, though, the reason why Brooklyn Nine-Nine works is because it's diversity. It's, it's the way we look. We mm-hmm. look like people you know. Right. You know what I mean? I, if you look at TV uh, just 10 years ago, oh. it was kind of crazy. I mean, Seinfeld listen, and Friends were in New York. You never hey, saw a person of color dude, on that show. What New York is that? <laughs> I mean, you have to say, there were a lot of people who loved the show. But sure, okay. I, I was, I, I'm again, with you. I was one of those guys who was like, man, yeah. no black people in New York. <laughs> No Hispanic no people in New York. York. Come on. And I was like, come on. Who's and it's kind of why but see with us, right. here we you have two African American men who run the precinct. Mm-hmm. You have two Latina women who are great at what they do. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, a crazy, you know, Jake Peralta played by Andy Sandberg. You mm-hmm. got Joe Latrulio. You got Chelsea Peretti doing her thing. It feels like a real life. Mm-hmm. And that is what the I think is really the difference. That puts us above all the other stuff. It's cause it's like, man, I know these guys. I work there. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Totally. I know. I feel like I've worked with these guys 
my whole life, and I've never been an officer. I've never been around him, but it's so familiar, and I think that's why it works. The show is hysterical. You can see it on Fox, the season premiere starting next week. My wife said you were the nicest of all the celebrities in San Diego. She goes, Terry Crews is great. You have oh. to get him on the show. He was such a sweet guy. I said, yeah. I said, well, you know why? She goes, why? She goes, he was in White Chicks, which is one of her favorite movies. <laughs> and this was her question. She goes, you have to ask, because I go, everybody tells him to sing the Vanessa Carlton song. Oh, so that's, yeah. that's played out. She said the funniest scene is at the end when uh, Wayne's takes the mask off. <laughs> it's not that you say you're a man. It's that you're not black. You're not, you're not, <laughs> no, I said you're not white. You're not white. That's no, that's it. Well, th- let me tell you something. <laughs> and this is weird. Is, I will tell a little secret here. Sure. The, the character I played was actually based on a real ball player that I knew. NFL and, player. A real NFL ball player. <laughs> And it was wild. I mean, this guy, he was like, he had his focus on one kind of person. Right. One kind of thing. And he was so, it was a mission for him. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of sad, to be honest with you. Like, it it didn't matter, you know, if a, the, a beautiful black woman came to right. came over. White chicks, be- baby. Beautiful Indian woman. He was like, man, no, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, I, hello. And he'd go right over to that blonde. And it was like, it was beeline, you know. Uh, and it was funny. And this guy knows who he is because like, I told him. Sure. And it's so funny because we always look at each other and laugh. I'm like, you know, you, you know, you helped my career, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and he just laughs. But it's really a, this is the reason why it was so funny is because a lot of people, you know, recognize right, that, that that was a real deal. Right. It's very funny. It's a great movie, and I also wonder how much you get talked about the Old Spice commercials. Oh, yeah, man. Does that get tiresome that people still bring it up? Oh, no, no. Because it it was a great campaign. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not tired of anything (laughs) anybody brings up on me. You know, know, it's so many people trying to run away from stuff. I'm trying to run back into stuff. You know what I'm saying? I'll, I'll do the. I'll go back and do Everybody Hates Chris again. No, that was great. You know what I mean? I swear, I have never done a character that I didn't like doing. You know, because awesome. I don't do anything for money. I have right. never, ever acted for money, ever. Right. I have to be, I have to feel it and love it, and I do it. You know what I'm saying? It's right. one of those, doing Newsroom was one of the most great, greatest experiences for me, mm-hmm. just like doing Idiocracy and playing President Camacho right. uh, or, or jumping over and, and doing Brooklyn Nine-Nine or doing a movie with, with, you know, Ridiculous Six with Adam and all those guys. Right. Dude, I am living a dream. No, you know I, what I mean, this is stuff that you did when you were a kid. You played dress up, you played outside, you played cops and robbers, you did your thing. Right. And now I get to do it, and then they pay you for it. It's crazy. That's great, man. It's a good life. Give me a story from The Expendables. All those big actors. Oh, actions man. Cool. All those dudes. Everybody getting together. And and the thing is, it got kind of funny because people wouldn't be at the weight, in the weight room at the same time. <laughs> because no <laughs> one wanted to give out their little secret. Like, that one little move, right. that's all the difference. But I didn't care because I was in the gym the whole time. But I noticed that, that you would see, like, Van Damme walk in, and then he kind of walked back out. <laughs> or, you know, and then Slides on the bench. Yeah, come slides back like, yeah, you, know, I, you got that? Okay, I'll, I'll be right back in a minute. Don't, don't worry about it. No, no, you don't have to get up. No, no, I got it. I got it. And you started to notice that these dudes didn't want to give away their secrets. Right. You know what I mean? So it, it was kind of wild. But that's that's that ego thing. That's that. It's the same thing in sports. Yeah, absolutely. Hollywood is always... just like the sports world in probably every aspect. And one of the reasons you've made that transition. I do want to ask you one serious question. Okay. you got five kids, which is amazing. I know you love your family. And I give you credit for this because this was very courageous. When you came out and you said, listen, I've got a problem with pornography oh, yeah. addiction. There's not a lot of dudes in your position who would do that and do that publicly. And I can't think of how many other fathers out there who said, you know what? 
I've got these same issues, and I listen. If Terry Crews can be so public about that, and he's a major actor, and people can ask him about that, then maybe I should seek help too. I just want to know what was the moment that you said, "You know what? This has crossed over into something else." Oh wow! When my wife was like, "I'm out." Wow. When my wife was like, "I'm done," and it hits you, man. See, right. this is the thing. It's like having the only way I can really describe it is an erroneous, uh, an erroneous belief. Mm-hmm. It's like having bad code in your computer. You understand what I mean? I believed I was more valuable than my wife and kids. That's where it starts. Then it goes into you can you watch pornography and it becomes this thing where you know you're the man, you deserve it. I can do this. It's you know I'm a guy. It's macho culture. I'm a guy, so it's not a problem. You know, and then you you expect her to just understand. You know what I mean? Like, you know, guys, we, we like other, you know, we're going to look at girls. We're going to look at whatever. Right. But the truth is, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Well, how would you like it if your girl was out there getting money from somebody else? You understand what I mean? And right. I had, see, these kind of deep, deep-seated beliefs really, really changed and, and, and corrupted me. And, I, and this is one thing I have to say about the sports world. The mm-hmm. sports world in general has what I call the cult of masculinity. I was a part of it. I was a card-carrying member of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you felt like we're men, we do it, look at these cheerleaders, they'll get, uh, and this is where guys get in trouble mm-hmm. because they feel they can take something that doesn't belong to them. They feel like they, they, they deserve this. I won the game. I deserved a pretty girl. Even if she doesn't want you, it becomes this kind of thing. And, and let me tell you something. My wife was like, I am out. I don't even know you anymore. And, it, you know, and it hit me. I said, hold on. I have to change. I have to change. Because there was a minute there I thought it was her. And I'm like, you know what? I'll just go get a new girl. Right. Peace. Again, cult of masculinity. Entitlement. Hey, look, you know, you know how many women want me? I'm good. Right. Then all of a sudden, I had a small thought that said, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. And then all of a sudden, once you crack that egg. Mm-hmm. That thing breaks all over the place. And I was making eggs, man. It was scrambled all over the place. <laughs> I had to go to rehab. That's tough. Let me tell you, when I went to rehab, because I knew I had a problem, mm-hmm. and I said, and the first day in there, I was like, I'm out. I don't need this. Right. I'm not as bad as these guys. Right. But the problem is when, you're, when you don't recognize your problem as your own, that's the first mistake. It's always somebody else. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, sports world, they, they can say this, on the sports team. You can say, you can't blame the quarterback. You got to blame you. You got to take responsibility. <laughs> How many times do you hear this stuff and you don't get it in your life? Right. It's the transition. Athletes have a big, big problem mm-hmm. with, because you know, I have to, I call it fake discipline. You have a coach telling you when to wake up, when to eat, when to go to sleep, when to do a thing. And this is why they have problems when they retire. And all of a sudden you're on your own and you gain 500 pounds. Right. And you don't know what to do. You you get in all this trouble. You understand. Because the discipline was never yours. I had no self-discipline. And I had to get it. And I got it. And then when I went on Facebook, my whole mission was to tell any. It was like I had to be that guy who broke that ice for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Because if you feel like, hey, Terry Crews has got an issue, then maybe you can come forward. And you can do your thing. Yeah. You know? And I had to help a lot. And let me tell you. The floodgates open, man. Right. For my Facebook, it was crazy. I got hundreds of thousands. I'm not talking hundreds. Hundreds <laughs> of thousands of right. people who said, I have this problem, too. Right. 
I give you much props for doing it, man, and for helping all those out there. And next year, Celebrity Softball in Miami. Yes. I'll expect you there. I'm, I, dude, I had the – me and my son, that was our road trip. It was one of the best things I ever did. Oh. And I can't wait to go back. And I'm going to hit the ball this time. I know you will. He's going deep. Brooklyn Nine-Nine next oh, yeah. week on Fox. Actors Showcase. All right, so if you want to know one thing about Stanzik, Denzel Washington is his favorite actor. Is that fair to say, Stanzik? Definitely used to be. It was him and Leo were one and one A, and eh, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's been know, a lean decade. He, he's yeah, <laughs> falling a little bit. Two, gu- two, two, two guns is not strong, yeah. Denzel, shall we say. Uh, he is a great actor, though, and I echo Stanzik's sentiments that at his best, Tough to get better than a great Denzel Washington performance. So we're going uh, five, four, three, two, one. Spoiler alert: the preacher's wife is not making the list. Um, so, when it comes to the best movies of Denzel Washington, you know I think he has a really innate ability to find the essence of his character. And I think that especially early on, he was this firebrand, and that was part of the goal of what kind of made him so good was that when when Denzel was acting, you felt that righteous fury. And in that vein, the number five movie I'm giving him is The Hurricane. Because that movie, and I remember afterwards there was a bit of a backlash against Norman Jewison's film because some people said, well, Reuben Hurricane Carter isn't as saintly as the movie portrays him to be, and he's got his own skeletons in the closet. And it was a, a little bit annoying, to be honest, because, okay, it, we all get that's a true-life story, but we should just focus on the film itself. And I get that sometimes movies take liberties and then it feels false, uh, but ultimately I think it should be judged as a movie. And the way that Denzel plays this guy, I mean, he's just – wrongly accused and trying to fight for his freedom. And how can you not appreciate a guy who's undergoing this struggle? And there's moments of raw power in that movie that are as good as Denzel's done. There's one scene he's, at that point, he's bald, he's got the glasses, and he's grabbing the phone, he's tapping it against the glass. He's like, you get me out of this jail. Like, he's just, he's so frustrated at that point that he's like, just help me out here because he's dealing with this horrific story of being wrongfully imprisoned. I mean, I can't imagine uh, many worse fates for anybody than having to do that. So The Hurricane is my number five movie. Uh, number four, I know Stanzik is desperate to get Inside Man in here. I did, I did toy with getting Inside Man in, um, but I, and, you know, okay, you know what? Let's go Inside Man. I was, I was going to really upset you. I'll tell you afterwards what I was thinking about, but I'll go ahead and do it. Inside Man is number four. It's a great bank movie, uh, heist movie. Uh, Clive Owens in it. Him and Denzel matching wits together is good. Spike Lee, who's one of my favorite directors, but has also fallen on lean times, hasn't made a great movie in the last decade or so. Uh, especially the way his early classics were. Inside Man was a bit of a comeback for Spike. I remember it was a huge box office hit. It was well-received by critics. People liked it. Inside Man, just a good genre film. It was really well done as far as, you know, a good bank heist movie and, and what it accomplished. And in fact, they talked about making a sequel. I don't remember what happened with that. They, Inside Man 2, I don't think it would have washed. Dude, if you get Denzel as a detective, like, how, how can you go wrong? <laughs> that's true. And that's there's a clever plot. That's just that's just a great movie. All right. So we got number four is Inside Man. Number three, Courage Under Fire. So, you know, the, again, we have this uh, Gulf War drama here. Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan's okay in the way, but Denzel, again, really anchors it because of the fact he's this guy who is dealing with the past and this terrible atrocity. And, and the way he deals with his guilt is excellent. Like, he's this character who is trying to overcome this this episode and they're flashing back to it and and i thought it was really well directed and really well crafted and there's one scene in there that's as good as denzel's done it's after he's going home um and he's now kind of accepted what he's done and the the guilt has been released he wants to just go home to his family and he's done beating himself up and everything's happened with lou diamond phillips and matt damon really good supporting cast in that movie and as he's walking up and i'm pretty sure this was ad-libbed i read this there's a bike like on the front lawn and denzel just kind of picks up the bike and puts it back and it is such a wonderful, subtle gesture of this family man who is now accepting the fact that I'm going to stop 
beating myself up over what happened in the war. I'm going to stop abusing alcohol. I'm going to go back to being a dad. I'm picking the bike up. I'm going to be a good family man again. It's a really excellent scene. Um, it's right at the end there of Courage and Her Fireman, number three movie. Number two is Glory. He won an Oscar for this one. My boy Dan Aykroyd was nominated for Driving Miss Daisy, great Canadian comic actor, and they asked him about winning. He goes, listen, I just saw Denzel Washington in Glory. I have no chance of winning. And if you haven't seen Glory, stop what you're doing. Go back and watch it. It's amazing. It's um, Civil War drama. And Denzel plays a runaway slave who signs up to fight for the 54th Regiment, which was uh, all black, and they were the ones fighting for the North and, and fighting for their freedom. And all the different characters kind of have good backstories. You know, Matthew Broderick is the leader of them, and he's this young white guy who's a little bit out of his element, but he's trying to be supportive of these guys, but he's also trying to be rigid, so he's in a tough spot. Kerry Elwes um, is his right-hand man, and he's friends with Thomas, who's played by Andre Brower, who's this really smart, educated black intellectual, which means that the guys like Denzel are like, oh, you're this, not, not quite an Uncle Tom, but they view him through a negative prism because they're like, oh, you talk so proper, you think you're so much better than the rest of us. So Brower's hearing it from both sides. Morgan Freeman is the authoritative figure that they all look forward to. Like, he's kind of like their uncle or their father figure. And then Denzel's the runaway slave who's just filled with so much anger and spit and, and, and fire and just, just angry at the world. And I think Morgan Freeman even says that one point. He's like, this guy's just angry at everything. And there's one scene that he runs away and they catch him. And so the army has to uh, punish him. And so Broderick calls for like a thousand lashes and they just just beat the crap out of this guy. And when they rip off Denzel's shirt in his back, you see all the lashes and all the beatings that he's taken um, as the slave and as uh, you know what the slave masters have done to him. And Denzel, the way he stares at Matthew Broderick, he's just got so much rage in his heart. Like, I don't care what you guys do to me, the kind of pain that I felt in my life. And he's staring at him with all this fury anger. And then just the one single tear comes down. Like, it's just... <laughs> it's amazing what he does with that movie. And later on, there's a campfire scene, which is also excellent. You know, all the guys are kind of bonding before the big, uh, the big last battle. And Denzel talks about, you know, this is what the war's all about. This is why I'm with you guys. And even though he's been this hard ass the entire movie, he does have a soul and he does want to be with them. And, and the way that he shows the humanity beneath this gruff, tough exterior, glory's outstanding. Number one, Malcolm X. It's his best movie. My man Marty, he said Malcolm X, one of the top ten movies of the 90s, wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. Denzel was nominated for Best Actor. And as Ebert said, he goes, he's carrying the torch for this film. But he had no chance of winning because Pacino had never won. So Pacino had to win for Scent of a Woman, even though Denzel and Malcolm X, it is one of the great big screen epics of all time. You know, my criticism earlier of Sully, just like, what's it, what a bland central character he was. Well, Malcolm X was a riveting character. You know, Malcolm Little, as a kid, was a hustler. He was a pimp. He was an absolute criminal. He goes to prison. Uh, he then converts to Islam. He meets this character, Baines, who helps him see the light. He educates himself. He becomes a member of the very radical, very militant nation of Islam, which is preaching uh, separation between blacks and whites. So he rises to prominence through that. That's the second act. And then the third act is he actually kind of has a crisis of conscience because he realizes that Elijah Muhammad is not who he once was or not who at least he believed him to be. He ends up leaving the nation of Islam, tries to go towards a more mainstream element of his faith, and then ends up being assassinated by the very people with whom he was working for. It's Spike Lee's you know, powerful epic. I'd say it's, it's his best movie along with Do the Right Thing. But for Denzel, what he did in Malcolm X, I mean, you watch that movie and you go, this guy's one of the all-time greats. The way he's able to show compassion he's able to show charm he's able to show leadership like you watch that movie and you go back and watch old school like real footage of malcolm x and it's it's indistinguishable like denzel looks eerily like him especially those speeches like the way his oratorical skills are incredible 
Um, so Malcolm X is one of the great. So my top five Denzel Washington movies are Malcolm X, Glory, Courage Under Fire, Inside Man, and The Hurricane. Now Stanzik is going to be upset as to why I did not include Deja Vu. Or Crimson Tide. <laughs> I actually like Deja Vu. <laughs> you also, it, hang on, you you didn't have Training Day in there. Training Day did not make it. won the Academy Award. He was the second African-American ever to win the Academy Award. And he won it for that role. Ethan Hawke. He plays a terrible Hawk. guy. And you're a hater again. What, no, no. What's wrong with... Listen, training the opening is great. I love the whole refrain of my man and the, the way he comes across as this big, larger-than-life gangster. Like, it's it's Denzel's Scarface, which is a good thing, but I think the, the third act, the two are the top, and the King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Like, it, it's entertaining, but I hey, thought it was grandstanding at that point. You love those lines in, like, Breaking Bad. You're all but about those those. I am villains. the danger. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so you love him there. You hate him in Training Day. You're inconsistent. I don't no, like him. Training Day honorable mention. I don't think it's a great listen. He's great, and it, it's entertaining. He shouldn't have won an Oscar for it. He should have won an Oscar for these other movies. Training Day is the one notable omission. Although, you're a big Pelican Brief guy. I was going to say it if you didn't. <laughs> Him and Julia Roberts. Oh, what a film. Grisham novel. Check it out. Pelican Brief. Oh, keep the heat coming. Adnan ESPN. Go ahead and tell me how outraged you are that I did not include Training Day or the Pelican Brief in our actor's show. Remember the Titans, too. Uh, yeah, I'm not, not crazy. No, I, I get it. You know, I, no, I'm not. You, you, you like John Q? John, John Q. <laughs> Awful. Well, people are trying to go, how great is John Q? I'm like, are you kidding? If I thought Forrest Gump was shameless and manipulative, what do you think I think John Q is? <laughs> what a turkey that movie was. Streaming suggestions. We got a ton here. Stands can load me up, so we'll try to go. As uh, <laughs> he's emailed me, be judicious. The best advice he's given in a while. Netflix Jaws. This is coming hot off the heels of the fact um, the AFI, the American Film Institute tribute, was to John Williams. Many people is the greatest composer of all time. Here's a stat for you: John Williams has been nominated for an Oscar fifty times. Like, uh, I love Ennio Morricone. Um, you know, he did the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. He did. Um, the Hateful Eight, the Tarantino film, which he finally won an Oscar for. He'd never won an Oscar previously. I love James Horner. He did the Glory soundtrack. He did Titanic. But really, I don't know how you can get a better composer. Well, you know what? Bernard Herman was Hitchcock's guy. He's outstanding. I should rephrase. I put Bernard Herman right there and then John Williams. But but five Oscars and 50 nominations. And one of his best scores, like when you go through it, you go, hey, this is Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Schindler's List is a great soundtrack because it's so uh, moving and, and melancholy with those violins. Um, but, of course, Star Wars, he'll never top. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is a very good one. Superman, he did the score for. But Jaws is a great one. And he, he explained the story when I watched the F5 tribute, which was aired last week on uh, Turner, uh, Turner Classic Movies. He said just that whole idea of going, dun, dun, dun. He said he was fiddling around on his piano. He's actually, his parents worked in the film industry, and they were into music. So as a kid, he was really, you know, he became this virtuoso. But he was just playing around. And Spielberg goes, what kind of music can we have when the shark comes? And he goes, I just thought those beats, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. And we'll just speed it up the closer the camera gets to the shark. And it was so deceptively simplistic, but it was amazing. And they tell the story. They go, when people watch Jaws, they just heard that music come. They go, I can't take it. Like, it was so intense. It's just, dun, dun, dun. And the camera would start moving in. You haven't even seen a bloody shark. It's just a bunch of kids playing in the water, but it was so powerful. And I get it. Like, watching it again, you go, that music was amazing. So if for some reason you've never seen Jaws, see it for the John Williams music alone, along with, of course, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus. Uh, and Spielberg's first masterpiece. It was amazing what he did back in 1975, considering he couldn't get a shark that looked realistic, wildly over budget. The stories behind Jaws are amazing, but the movie itself still holds up. And Man on Wire, which is a great documentary. This was about 
uh, Philippe Petit, who was a high walker who crossed the, the Twin Towers. And this movie came out in 2008 and won the Oscar for documentary. It is such an uplifting film, like not to be fanciful about it, but it's one of those movies that makes you believe in the human spirit. It really does. Like This guy was so inspired by the Twin Towers and what he could accomplish that in the middle of the night they have this crazy raid that was done, you know, obviously under the radar because it was so illegal. And he just puts this bounce beam and he literally crossed between it. He was, it, was, it was like he was walking on air. And I was not alive for that episode itself. So to see it, it really comes thrillingly to life. They have Petit talking about it along with his accomplices, I um, mean, you know, along with the police, how they reacted when they just looked up. and Oh, my God, there's this man in the sky who's walking back and forth. Man on Wire, a great documentary. That's currently on Netflix. Amazon Prime, any given Sunday, of course, is my man Pacino. Really good football movie. The, the inch-by-inch speech alone is amazing. Pacino, when I went and saw him a couple months ago, he said, because people still come up to you, because apparently athletes tell me all the time. They say, we, we watch that speech all the time. We, you know, we put it in the locker room. It inspires us. And Al was like, great. Oliver Stone said, he goes, when I, when I knew I had Al, I said, I have to have at least one scene where he gives the big coach's speech. And for a, a genre which is often cliched and very predictable and hackneyed like sports movies, any given Sunday, I still think it's a really good sports movie. I think it has... Great action and good violence. I like the scenes between Pacino and Fox, and, of course, they have that great speech scene at the end. Also, I'm recommending Full Metal Jacket. Speaking of speeches, <laughs> R. Lee Ermey, who plays the sergeant in Full Metal Jacket, if you want a good laugh, and maybe you have to be a little deranged like me and Stanzer, but, like, the first ten minutes is <laughs> the way he just belittles these guys. <laughs> okay, I do have a sick sense of humor because he's absolutely just crazy, the insults that he throws at these people. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio eventually crumbling under the weight of it. But when I saw <clears throat> J.K. Simmons in Whiplash, I was like, oh, he's doing what Arlie Hermie did in Full Metal Jacket, which is just dehumanize all these souls around you. Kubrick's film, I think the first hour is brilliant. I think the second hour really falls off, and it's terrible. Whenever people go, what are some great war movies? I saw Platoon, Apocalypse Not Glory, and the first hour of Full Metal Jacket. Like, what about the second hour? They go, it stinks. Like As, as soon as Arlie Ermey goes away, the movie completely fizzles for me. On Hulu, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Let's get a little comedy in there. Can I relieve myself? Yes. Thank you. Steve Martin, great scene with Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Stanzik knows. I only did this just so I could do a Michael Caine impression. If you want to talk like Michael Caine, you must only say a few words at a time. Michael Caine used to talk like this in the 1960s. Now he talks very, very slowly. And he gets a shaky voice. Asked away. <laughs> Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is when he had made the transition from old Michael Caine to new Michael Caine, but not quite the shaky voice. Also recommending Eight Men Out. It's my favorite baseball movie. John Sayles, uh, John Cusack is in the cast. Uh, David Strathairn playing Eddie Seacott. Uh, Charlie Sheen's in the movie. John Mahoney plays the manager. Great movie because it's, you know, like all great sports films. It's not only about the sport, but what went on behind it. And it's all about the, the, the Black Sox scandal and how... It really kind of ripped America from its innocence of that time, but you feel sympathy for these guys. Comiskey was a was a cheap guy. Their owner was screwing them. So, yeah, let's go ahead and throw the World Series, as crazy as that sounds. Eight Men Out is still a great, great movie. HBO Now, a couple movies for you. Rushmore, which earlier discussed. You don't need to go over that again. Stanzik agrees it's a great movie. He just doesn't think the Bill Murray role is the top five. But I, I would I would quibble with that. I think Bill Murray's... You had it at number one. No, I didn't. Did yes, I? you did. It was your number one Bill Murray movie. <laughs> number one role. And because I keep screwing up uh, the, the rules that you have laid correctly, which is you should rank the role, not the movie. I just love Rushmore's movie so much, I keep superseding that. Right? Groundhog Day is the answer, <laughs> but continue. Groundhog Day, I was up there, right? I had it two or three. It was yeah, definitely, yeah, it was yeah, definitely yeah, two high. or three. Groundhog Day may be actually the right answer. And also Steve Jobs. I want to know if Stanzik has seen this yet. Have you seen Steve Jobs? 
No. Was, I feel like there's been a few of them. Yeah, you're right. The Ashton Kutcher one I'm not referring to. I'm referring to the one that Aaron Sorkin wrote. He won a Golden Globe for it for best screenplay. I read the Walter Isaacson book. And? Amazing, it's, right? It's very good. Yeah, it's is, very long, but very good. He is not a likable individual. And, and that's what Steve Jobs did a good job of doing the movie, portraying the facets of him. Michael Fassbender stars in it, directed by Danny Boyle. It was a huge box office bomb. Like, nobody went and saw this movie. The critics liked it, but it's still not even enough. Like, it didn't get enough buzz at the Oscars. But I've got to be one of the few out there who really likes Steve Jobs. Check it out on HBO Now. Also, The English Patient, which you talk about great Oscar miscarriages of justice. This one doesn't get enough play. People always mention... Uh, when Shakespeare and Love beat Saving Private Ryan, which is awful, I have obviously gone on a tirade about uh, Forrest Gump beating Shawshank and Pulp Fiction. I would add to that, Goodfellas Dances with Wolves is embarrassing. And 1980, Ordinary People is still a good movie. Robert Redford directed it, but shouldn't it beat Raging Bull, which is one of the all-time great movies. But among that list, 96, English Patient won Best Picture over Fargo. Like, are you kidding me? Who in the last 20 years has said, I feel like watching The English Patient tonight versus Let's Watch Fargo. How funny is that movie? So that's another one to throw out there. The English Patient is streaming on HBO now. Actors in three words. All right, I always screw this up because I never shut up. So this time I'm going to do it properly, which stands says the actor that I say. We took a respite from three words, right? We didn't do it last time. Well, we had De Niro, and he did three words on Scorsese, so we felt like it was it was done properly. Do you think it's good that he did it, even though he didn't do it the right way? Like, should I? Well, you can do it either way. It's fine, but I I think we enjoy the when there's three different words Correct. instead of a continuous three words. But you're right; you can do it either way. But we're trying to get new listeners, new subscribers, so we're trying to bring in our guy Brooksy here. So our first actor oh. in three words is Will Smith. Brooksy just obsessed with Will Smith. We'll have to do an actor showcase of Will Smith soon for Brooksy. First one is Fresh Prince, because that's all I think about is the Fresh Prince. Um, the next one is Stud. Like, his movies, as far as making money, like, Stud. Like, you go back at the box office grosses of Will Smith, with the exception of Concussion, which was a real dud coming out of Christmas, this real downer of a movie. Generally, you got Will Smith in a movie, you're going to make a ton of money. So if you're a studio, you look at him, you think stud. And the third word for him is West Philadelphia, because I just always think of the song. So Will Smith's life in three words, I've done two from the Fresh Prince. In West Philadelphia. Feel free to change West Philadelphia for something else. Let's just move on. Let's go with, let's go with his kid. I just think of, I think of his child, the fact he's trying to emulate his father. How about do that? The new Karate Kid? Yeah, the new Karate Kid. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so the three words for us with are Fresh Prince, Stud, and Karate Kid. Excellent. Yep. Cameron Diaz. So you talked any given Sunday earlier. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go uh, Goofy, which I like about her. Like, you think of Charlie's Angels, she's shaking her butt around her thing. You think of her in the mask. Uh, you know, she's always being silly. I like that about her. You see her on talk shows. She doesn't look like she takes herself too seriously. She, is, she does not have any pretension about her. So I think she's goofy in a good way. I think she's flirtatious. Again, you always see her in these movies, always kind of ramping up her sex appeal. Uh, but I also think, and this is the third word, is drama, meaning she could use one. Like, it's always these comedies. I'd like to see her do something beyond just playing this goofy, flirtatious hot chick. Because, not to be mean, she's getting a little advanced here in age now. So when you're, you know, hitting 50, you can't just keep doing sex tape with all these people. Have you seen the movie What Happens in Vegas with her and Ashton Kutcher? I have not. You're missing out. Really? Really funny? Really Very s- funny. Okay. Yeah, but how- I mean, keep the bar low. No, no that's fine. But- Listen, I recommend watch it. You watch terrible movies all the time. I'm going to say, so. I recommend a Dirty Rotten Scoundrel, so we can we can watch a stupid comedy once in a while. All right. A, a guy that does comedy and drama pretty well, Jonah Hill. First one, you know what it's going to be. Rotund. Right out of the gate. You think of Jonah Hill, like, that guy is rotund. But he's a guy that went to Hollywood and lost some weight. Right. He was fat, uh, achieved fame, went skinny, and then his agent was like, no, you're better when you're fat. Like, you're not going to get the roles you want. So he's Oprah. <laughs> 
That's the second word then. You know what? I'm going to go ahead. Oprah. So first one is rotund. Second word is Oprah. Third word is Marty, because every interview he does, he may love – well, he doesn't as much as me, but he may love Scorsese as much as me, because every interview he always talks about Marty. He's like, you know what? I don't care what happens in my life. Scorsese loves me. He's like, he cast me in Wolf of Wall Street. The story he tells, Leo got like ten fifty million, whatever it was for it, and Jonah Hill got paid scale. He was on Howard Stern. He was like – and Howard Stern was blown away. He goes, hang on a second. Scorsese calls you and goes, you got the way we get, you get paid scale? He's like, yeah. He goes, give me the amount. And Jonah Hill's like, wow. Well, he goes, give me the amount. He goes, I don't know. It was like $75,000. He goes, well, hang on a second. You got paid $75,000 to Wolf Washington and DiCaprio made $20 million? Are you kidding? And Jonah Hill's reasoning was great. He goes, listen, I'll make my money on all those other movies that I make, like all those big, goofy comedies and the stuff. You know, like This is the End with Franco and those guys or uh, 22 Jump Street. He goes, I'll do that stuff with Channing Tatum. That's where I make my money. He goes, I just wanted to work with Marty. He goes, you understand. Like, I'm obsessed with Scorsese. I'll do whatever he says. Like, I auditioned for it. I sent him tapes. Like, when I did it, I had the fake teeth in, so I looked like Donnie Azoff. He's like, I would have done, like, cocaine on set if Scorsese's like, yeah, we really want you to get into character. I'm like, fine. I'll get coked up. That's what you want me to do. So I love the fact Jonah Hill loves Marty. Wait, they weren't doing coke? (laughs) (laughs) The powder they were doing, apparently, I can't remember what it was, whatever the replica for cocaine, still does cause issues. Because they said at times we had nosebleeds, and people are like, hang on a second. Are you guys actually on coke? They're like, no, no, it's this baby powder. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. The baby powder that Scorsese gives you guys. Sure, whatever. So three words, rotund, Oprah, and Marty. (laughs) The Oprah one needs some explaining. Uh, Drew Barrymore. E.T., first thing I think of. You you think of kid stars in great movies. Drew Barrymore is one of those, so E.T. made her name. Cute is the second word. It's it's just that puckish look on her. Let's go with puckish. Puckish is the second word for Drew Barrymore. Rather than cute, we'll go E.T. and puckish. The third one, limited. Like, what do you expect to Drew Mirror beyond E.T. and maybe a romantic comedy? I think she's terrible. <laughs> I have a strong dislike for Drew Barrymore. Like, I've never gotten it. I've never thought she was particularly good at anything. I think that's a reasonable criticism. Like, aside from E.T. and, like I said, a couple of rom-coms, which a lot of actresses could do. I don't think what she's doing is anything special. So she was in The Wedding Singer. Great. Got it. Okay. I love it. She was carried in Charles Angels. Okay. Right. Let's cross. I think Drew she's Barrymore. just well connected and knows people and was a child star and people know her name. She has name recognition. I would agree with you on that. All right. Lastly, Edward Norton. I think he's underutilized. How great is he in Birdman? Like I think Keaton should have won the Oscar, but Edward Norton is fantastic in Birdman. Like you look at his movies, you know, starting with Primal Fear, made him a star back in '96, put him on the map. But Twenty uh, Fifth Hour, he's excellent in. With Spike Lee directed that. The, the monologue he gives about how much anger he has towards New York and the the ending to that movie is really powerful. Still, Ed Norton, I think, is is underutilized. I think he's crafty which I think is interesting in his movies. He always has this intelligence about him, whether it's Rounders or whether it's Birdman. His character is always kind of crafty and kind of smart. And the third word for him, I don't really have one, to be honest with you, Stanzik. Ed Norton, I think, underutilized, crafty. There's not a third one that jumps Fight out. Club. Oh, we'll go with Fight Club. Like, Tyler Durden. Right. Okay, Durden. The, th- the three words are under... Soap. <laughs> Just soap. <laughs> the three words are underutilized, crafty, and soap. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. A Scorsese story. There is a generous soul walking this earth who does not want acclaim or recognition. Whoever sent me this book, please tell me so I can thank you. Is it the publisher? Is it the author? In case you're new to the podcast, somebody sent me this gorgeous coffee table, Martin Scorsese book, a retrospective. It's 276 pages. I finally finished the Jim Miller book, the CA book, 707 pages. How far into that are you, Stanzik? I think about 230. <laughs> I don't think I've picked it up in a week and a half. It's a struggle. Because you've inspired me. I, I said, I want to be like you in that you read a book every two weeks. So I started the Jim Miller book like late August. I'm like, i got to be done by September 15th. So I pounded through. But it is... 
It is an exhaustive chronicle of what agency the rise to stardom. Um, so now I'm, I'm crushing the Marty book. I'm 90 pages in. And it's great because it goes movie by movie, and it's a combination of these gorgeous photographs. You know, it's a big coffee table book. It's like you know, pictures of him and De Niro behind the scenes um, and the rest of the cast. And then it's like a kind of a critical appreciation of each movie and then maybe a couple of stories about it. So I was reading this stuff about Mean Streets yesterday, and it was great, you know, telling how shoestring budget and his dad actually raised some of the money asking some locals in the neighborhood. And people in the neighborhood actually were a little bit annoyed. They were like, what kind of depiction are you doing of Little Italy in a bus? Like we're a bunch, bunch of – Crooks and gamblers, and Marty's like, well, that's kind of what I saw like growing up here when I looked outside my tenement building. That's what it was. And the review from Pauline Kale, I remember I reread it last night. It said it's a personal triumph of filmmaking, and that's why the critics all loved it because they were like, this clearly is coming from this guy's soul. Like it's such a semi autobiographical story, and it's clearly done with his heart and a lot of passion. And the way that it was influenced by European filmmakers, all those jump cuts, the use of the music. Like they said, even the first five minutes, you could tell watching that in the theater in 1973, this is the birth of a new filmmaker. And a lot of people confuse it with Scorsese's first movie. He made Who's That Knocking at My Door, which he's only partly happy with because it was such a struggle to make. And it was off and on for like four years. Keitel was the star of that movie as well. But even when he looks back at it, he's like, well, it was... It had some flaws, even though Ebert liked it at the Chicago Film Festival. He said, watch out for this guy. Then he did Boxcar Bertha, which he actually had a budget and worked with Roger Corman and learned how to make movies on the fly. But when John Cassavetes, who was one of his heroes, saw it, he goes, Marty, you just wasted a year of your life. Like, it's well-crafted, but it's a piece of crap. Go do something with your heart. That's what inspired Mean Streets, which the original script for it was called Season of the Witch. And his buddy Jay Cox, who was a film critic with Time Magazine, suggested the title. And Marty actually goes, I, Mean Streets sounds kind of pretentious. Like, where are you getting that from? And, and Jay Cox said it's from a Raymond Chandler uh, novel. It's a line, down the mean streets a man must go. And Marty's like, yeah, okay, I guess it's kind of about adolescence and these guys kind of rising up. Season of the Witch would have been a terrible title. Hang on. I feel like the term mean streets is kind of a colloquialism now. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm from the mean streets of Philly or Correct. something. Is this all from that movie? Yeah, absolutely. And it was all spawned originally from the Raymond Chandler novel, who was known for writing these hard-boiled crime fiction stories. I, I didn't expect to learn this much today. <laughs> yes, yes. Just one quick question on the film because I've seen it. Yeah, now. this, by the way, this Scorsese story is about Stanza because no, you no, finally saw me. Very, very limited. No, no, you say, saw. I saw the film and yeah. we talked about it briefly. I, you said it's like the way he shot it was so much different than anything. Right. Because to me, it, I didn't notice it as being this like landmark film. Right. But like the cameras moving all over the place, the music. I get it. I guess that wasn't happening before. Correct. But my question: Did Harvey Keitel <laughs> and De Niro sleep in the same bed together? They mentioned that in this coffee table book I'm reading. It said something about there's all these little touches that Marty put from his friends, the way that they'll grab uh, trash can lids and fight with them until 6 in the morning and then share a bed together. And they quoted the one line. He goes, hey, do you want me to talk you in, sweetie? I don't know if De Niro says it to Guy Duck. I tell it to him. That was stands. Those are his two biggest takeaways from Mean Street. Because you never see them actually in the same bed together, but one of them's <laughs> still in the bed, and like you can kind of see an imprint, and they're making the joke. I'm pretty sure they did. The homoeroticism. No, anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with the course stuff. But it is not something you're expecting in this masculine film and this movie about the mean streets. Like, oh, how about the scene where Kaitel and De Niro share a bed? Okay. Yeah, if you go back, like, I'm glad Stanzik is now scenic. It's just important for film education. I know what you mean. Like, sometimes you see a movie and you go, I, I guess it was important for its time. Now I see so many movies do that, so I guess that it's been often imitated, never duplicated, but it doesn't, you know, resonate for me. But, yeah, that first few minutes just of uh, – that's actually Scorsese's voiceover. He says, you don't make up for your sins in the church. You do in the street. The rest is BS, and you know it. And he just cut to Kytel. Sleepless night goes back. The way he jump cuts, those three cuts, the Ronettes, Be My Baby. Like, at the time, it was like you never used pop music. You always used – classical scores like Bernard Herrmann or you know later John Williams the way Spielberg would. So at that time it was like, oh, he's using the music that you'd hear coming out of the jukebox in the 
50s and 60s and that montage of seeing him little Italy. And also that pool hall sequence. That was big because they were like, the way that this fight starts with the guy calling him a mook. He's like, a mook, a mook, what's a mook? And this guy's bam. And then the camera just follows him running all over the pool hall while they're playing uh, Mr. Please Mr. Postman's the song. Like De Niro's just wielding this pool cue like on top of the table ready to fight anybody. And then the cops come like, oh, it's a big misunderstanding. The cops, they fight again. The other crazy thing about Mean Streets, for such a quintessential New York movie, Ninety percent of it shot in Los Angeles. It was shot in twenty-seven days, maybe twenty-one days, and the vast majority was in LA. And then they had like three or four days to go shoot exteriors. So one scene, since Stanley can see it, it's fresh. De Niro and Keitel are on top of the rooftop, and he's shooting a gun. And he and Marty was like, "All right, make sure you do this properly because you know you're actually, I guess the interior was in LA, then the exterior was in New York. So it was very." tricky in terms of, okay, shoot in this direction or shoot this way, because it feels like a New York movie. Like, everything about it is, and yet, all the interiors were shot in Los Angeles. Isn't that the same in Seinfeld, shot in L.A., but based in New York? Yeah, which is crazy. When you go back, there's a Seinfeld comedians in cars getting coffee with Gary Shandling, where they walk by that old lot, and he was like, oh yeah, this is where we had Seinfeld. When you actually see the show, you go, really? None of that was in New York City? Like, no, it was all in a lot. That whole street, the whole apartment building, like, it feels so much like New York, so magic of filmmaking. So, I'm just pumped. My boy Stasek's seen The Verdict. He's seen Main Streets. King of Comedy's up next. He doesn't have a Blu-ray player. So somebody out there who is so generous who sent me this book, can you send in a Blu-ray player, care of ESPN, hook my buddy Stanzik up? Because I, I really want him to watch The King of Comedy. I know he was a little bit underwhelmed by Main Street, but I think I think he'll love The King of Comedy. I just recommended it to another guy, Mark Simon, here, and he thought he was dead. that was a really funny movie. I enjoyed it. I'm glad you recommended it. So um, Blu-ray player, hopefully forthcoming. I'm Adnan Burke. Thanks for downloading Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.